Good morning. If you would turn to the book of 1 Peter as we continue our series in Peter's letter to the churches of Asia Minor. And if you would turn to chapter 4. Begin, just follow along with me as I begin in verse 12 of chapter 4. Peter writes, and this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler, yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, we we come before you this morning and we, we submit our thoughts and we submit our desires and we submit our preconceived ideas we we submit all that we know and all that we are before your word Lord we submit to the authority of your word in our lives and that the authority of your word may transform us Lord speak to your church this morning encourage your church this morning strengthen your church this morning refresh your church this morning lord prepare your church this morning that they one by one and corporately together that we might all glorify your name help me lord to to bring clarity and faith to your word in christ's name Amen. Queen Mary ascended the throne of England in 1553. In subsequent years, she had at least 200 people put to death by fire for their religious convictions. It was the godliness of many of her victims that made them stand out. Mary's father, King Henry VIII, had separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, but he had not reformed the church's practice or doctrines. On Henry's death, his young son Edward became king. Many of Edward's advisors tried to move the English church in the direction of a more Bible-based Christianity. Two such men were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. The scholar Nicholas Ridley had been a chaplain to King Henry VIII and was Bishop of London under his son Edward. He was a preacher beloved of his congregation whose very life portrayed the truths of Christian doctrines that he taught. Hugh Latimer also became an influential preacher under King Edward's reign. He was an earnest student of the Bible, and as Bishop of Worcester, he encouraged the Scriptures be known in English by the people. When Mary became Queen of England, she worked to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. One of her first acts was to arrest Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer. 
After serving time in the Tower of London, they were taken to Oxford in September of 1555 to be examined by the Lord's Commissioner in Oxford's Divinity School. Unwilling to support the heresy of the Catholic Church and its worship of the Pope, both Ridley and Latimer (coughs) were burned at the stake in Oxford in October 1555. As he was being tied to the stake, Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Ridley's brother had brought some gunpowder for the men to place around their necks so death could come more quickly. But Ridley still suffered greatly. With a loud voice, Ridley cried, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood was green and burned only Ridley's lower parts without touching his upper body. He was heard to repeatedly call out, Lord, have mercy on me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come unto me. I cannot burn. One of the bystanders finally brought the flames to the top of the pyre to hasten Ridley's death. Latimer died much more quickly. As the flames quickly rose, Latimer encouraged Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Just recently I had surgery on my elbow. The elbow that many of you patted this morning to welcome me. I've had some surgeries in the past before, knee surgeries, and Marilyn knows that when I have surgery, I project. That's, that's my way of, of, of handling surgery. That's my way of getting through surgery. That's my way of preparing for surgery. I, I project. And so what I don't do is I don't think about the surgery. I think about after the surgery when I'm home in bed and Marilyn's bringing me chocolate pudding. That's, that's how I get through I, I, I project through the surgery. I, that's, my, that's my preparation. And, and in First Peter, Peter actually ha- does the same thing. He is preparing the church for suffering. They are living in, these, these church members are living in Asia Minor. It is the, the reign of Caesar Nero, which eventually will become a reign of terror and a reign of death upon Christians. But that has not yet happened. And, and what is happening after 30 years of, of Christianity being in vogue, Christianity being around, is that these Christians are beginning to experience social ostracism. They're being outcasts. They're, they're being insulted. And so Peter is preparing these people for suffering. And the way he does it, and, and this is where we read in chapter 4, what we just read, we'll be studying this morning. But the first thing, and this is the most important thing, and it's the passage you've heard me read again and again and again. And it's a passage that I want more than anything to, to invade your soul, is the, the passage in First Peter, where Peter begins their preparation for suffering with this. In chapter 1, in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is to an inheritance. Here is, here's this future. This is what Peter is preparing them for. Not just suffering, but what happens after suffering. Sort of the chocolate pudding after surgery. Here is what he's preparing them for. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. That's the, that's the preparation. That's what Peter is saying. Okay, our suffering is going to come. 
be prepared, but this is how you prepare. Project ahead. Look, look ahead. And from the very beginning of this letter, Peter has pastorally led these ancient saints through a theology of suffering. As followers of Jesus Christ, they've experienced life in a world that has slowly, but more, more and more become hostile to the followers of Christ. More anti-Christian. This story of Ridley and Latimer taking place many centuries after the writing of 1 Peter reminds us that, that Christ is still opposed, even centuries later. And, and not just in the first century or the 16th century where Ridley and Latimer were living, but in our own day as well. The, the hostile world that Peter is describing in his letter it has rarely led to violence and martyrdom of these readers. Not, not nearly as badly as what Ridley and Latimer were going through. The hostile world that Peter describes in his letter, ha has, it is real and it is, it is happening to these ancient believers and they are facing some suffering daily through insults and shame as they are being treated as outcasts for, for following Jesus Christ. But, but they've yet to be violently treated. And you fast forward from Ridley and Latimer in the 16th century to the 20th century, and, and if you study and you, you recognize that in the 20th century, more Christians have been put to death than all the centuries prior added together. And you, you look around in our day and age and you see the hostility towards Christ and his followers growing more and more. One of the lessons I learned many, many years ago when I was taking a class in, in pastoral ministry, um, one of my good friend C.J. Mahaney said this. He said, one of the most important things you can do to care pastorally for your church is to prepare them for suffering. Now, suffering in the broadest sense, when you're talking about suffering physically, suffering emotionally, suffering under illnesses, suffering financially, the broad, the broad spectrum of, of suffering exists. But, but Peter here is talking about suffering for following after Jesus Christ. This hostile world that Peter describes in his letter, it, it has not yet led to violence and martyrdom in our, in our locale. And, and that's one of the difficulties as I was preparing this message. And I told Devin this morning, I, it's just a hard time, is that you live in Montgomery County. You, you live in Frederick County. You live in counties around her, here that, that that they're just basically nice to you most of the time. Yeah, you don't like their taxes and you don't like their politics and you know you don't you don't like their their speed cameras and their you, things like that and and you you feel persecuted when you get tagged by a speed camera. Uh, that's not persecution. Um, that's just speeding and. <laughs> I, I look at this passage and I just think, how do I prepare my church? How does Devin prepare his church for suffering when things are not that bad? And, and what I come to is, just like my surgeries projecting ahead, Peter is projecting ahead. You need to project ahead. You, you need to be ready. You, you need to not be uninformed. You, you should not be ignorant. You should be aware that suffering is coming. And if it is not something that comes radically to you as an adult, be aware in the, in the culture and climate we live in, it's coming to your children. And the, the changes that Marilyn and I have seen 
just in the 40 years that we've been married, just a generation, what's happened in one generation since we got married, to see where Christianity rates on the scale of respectability today, it only is getting worse. So what relevance does this ancient text have for us? Well, although we, the time we live in is, is now peaceful, the hostility of the world towards Christians is growing. And it is growing right here, right in this county, in, in, among us who are sitting here and worshiping together. Peter's letter is, prepared, is preparing us and, and it is comforting us so that as he is closing this letter, as we finish with this, as we're closing in this ending passage, it's what Robert Mounts in his commentary calls, Peter is preparing them with a theology of suffering, a God view, a worldly, not a worldly view, a godly view of suffering. What does suffering mean? I've I've often also heard CJ say this. He said, it is in our darkest moment when we need our best theology. It's in our darkest moment or moments when we need our best theology. And Peter asks, Peter's asking this question in the background. He says, what do you believe about God when you are suffering for being a follower of Christ? And I'm sure if I polled this room, there would be one or two or three or four of you who have experienced some degree of suffering for being a follower of Christ. I watched my mom go through that. My mom, I'm, I'm Jewish. I was raised in a Jewish home. My mom, in her 70s, had many friends and relatives who were Jewish, and when they heard that her son, Larry, had become a pastor, their first question to, to her was, did you disown him? And my mom said, absolutely not. And they disowned her. And when she died, not a a relative came. Not a word. That exists. And so Peter Peter is asking, you know, Are you going to suffer? Yeah. Do you suffer? Well, maybe. And what do you believe about God when you are suffering for being a follower of Christ? Because it's in those moments that it feels that God is absent, even when we know he is still present. It can feel as though God is not there, even though we know he is. So with the following exhortations in this this passage, Peter, Peter prepares his readers for suffering. Four, four exhortations. The first one is simply this. Do not be surprised when you suffer, but rejoice. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, now before I, I even talk about the surprise Here's Peter's pastoral care. Here's God's loving care for his church, for you. With the very first word of Peter's exhortation, beloved. Beloved. It is so easy to just skip right past that. Beloved, do not be surprised. And we get into the fiery trial. But but there is a loud statement that God is making to you, about you in relation to him, beloved. Now, yes, this is Peter writing to the church he cared for. This is Peter writing to the church he loves. But, but it's more than that because these are the words of God. These are words inspired by God, written by Peter, but inspired by God. And this is God's word to you. And God says to you this morning, beloved, Beloved. And, and that, that word sets the tone for everything else that Peter says. It, it's the anchor to, to God's view of us. It, it's, what, it's what gives us hope. It's what brings us back to chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That is why we are beloved, because Christ died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. We are beloved. And if, if you walked away this morning with only one thought in mind, and that was beloved, you would, have, you would have taken as much from this verse as was necessary to, to know who God is and who you are before God. Amen. Beloved. What a, what, a, what a wonderful exhortation. This foundational truth is at the heart of a theology of suffering. If, if you do not feel beloved, Trust me, your theology of suffering will suffer. Because rather than feeling beloved, you will be feeling abandoned. And so Peter begins with this wonderful theological truth. Regardless of their circumstances, the unassailable truth is God loves you. God loves his children. And that, that sets the tone for the entire passage, the entire book, that this, the theology of suffering is anchored in the reality of God's love demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. The hope that they have when suffering is that promise of eternal life. So Peter, Peter is expressing his love for for these dear saints and he's expressing his love for you. Words that are coming down, the ancient words that are coming down through the ages. So he says, he says this, do, beloved, do not be surprised when you suffer, but rejoice. Interesting that Peter would say that. Rejoice when suffering. Currently, this body of people is experiencing isolation from the local culture, hostility from the culture, but Peter reassures them that, that persecution is not something strange and it's not something foreign to their existence as, as Christians. In fact, it's exactly, it's exactly what Jesus predicted. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Peter, Peter has taken his, his letter and, and crafted it around this very saying from Jesus. Rejoice and, and be glad. That be, understand that you are, you are blessed when people falsely and persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you because great is your reward in heaven. In heaven where? Where this inheritance is kept for you, unfading, undefiled, imperishable. And so Peter, Peter brings them to, don't, don't be surprised that, that this is happening. There, there's a reason for your suffering. And, and, and Peter gives a reason. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial fiery trial. Now, earlier in chapter 1, in, in, verse, in verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, now the various trials have shifted over to fiery trials. And Peter says, when these fiery trials come upon you, they come to test you. They come to test you. Peter is telling them, they're, they're, your suffering is, is a refining process that is going to reveal the genuineness of your faith. It's something that Peter, again, has already discussed with them in chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, you're going through a trial, a fiery trial. And it's a fiery trial of one specific thing. Somebody doesn't like you. 
They don't like you because you're a Christian. They don't like what you believe. They don't like what you say. They don't like how you act. They simply don't like you. And, and that's perplexing to you because you think, I'm one of the most likable people I know. <laughs> why, why would they not like me? And, and there is this fiery trial. And, and Peter says, hey, hey, d- d- don't, don't be surprised that it's going to come because you've already been told that's what happens to a follower of Christ. And, and don't think it's strange because that's what happens to a follower of Christ. What else What else should you and I expect from a culture that has no restraints on sin? In verse 12, he goes on to describe why they should not be surprised and why they should not feel it strange. He goes in verse 12, in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Listen, it's, it's very likely that their suffering was not daily. Interactions in the family, the neighborhood, the marketplace would often be uneventful. Often. At, at first, these new believers simply would have come across, like probably most of you and I, and I did when we first got saved, we just probably came across as a bit weird. A little different. Strange. You know, you know, just, he doesn't act the way he used to. And, and, and words come out of his mouth we've never heard before. And, and we, we come across as, as just a bit different, but, but not a threat. Not a threat. But Peter is aware change is coming. Peter, Peter knows the suffering they've experienced is real, but it's not severe. So soon as they seek to live this holy life in Christ, as they seek to be true followers of Christ, more and more the culture is going to resist them. Not only are they not going to look weird, they're not going to look strange, but they're going to make me feel guilty for the lifestyle that I live. That's, that's the impact we're supposed to have on the culture. Now, if we're not having that impact on the culture... If we are not experiencing some level of suffering because of our faith, and this isn't, this isn't, okay, go out and find a way to suffer for Christ. No, it's, it's an admonition to say, do you look different? Are, are you different than the culture? The high standards of Christianity should make society uneasy. Very uneasy. By living a holy life, these Christians in in Peter's time inadvertently became the conscience of society. And no doubt, people began to feel guilty. And it's not as though they were standing up saying, we are the conscience of society. It was simply by the holiness of of their lives, the life they were living, the very holiness that Peter admonished them to, to live in chapter, in chapter 1. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter's startling comment that a follower of Christ means suffering is a normal part of life and should as come as no surprise to them, probably surprise them. In fact, what he's saying is when, when they suffer, it's actually an opportunity to, to rejoice, to, to find joy and to be blessed. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice that you share in Christ's suffering. What is that sharing in Christ's suffering? It's identifying with Christ. Our, our suffering does not bring atonement like Christ's suffering brought atonement. Our suffering does not 
cover our sin like Christ's suffering and his death and his resurrection covered our sin. But our sharing in Christ's suffering is our identification that we belong to Christ. We are a follower of Christ. The word Christian is not, does not mean little Christ. It means follower of Christ. And when, when the word Christian was initially used in Antioch, it was a, it was a term of derision. It wasn't a term of respect. Oh, you're one of those Christians would have been the attitude and tone of the people. And when we share in Christ's sufferings, when we share in his sufferings, but we are to rejoice. Rejoice that you share his suffering. Rejoice that you are identified with Jesus Christ. Because if you're not identified with Jesus Christ, You're identified as one who is an enemy of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, Peter encourages them, rejoice that you, you are identified with Christ. And be glad, be glad, and, and rejoice that, that when his glory is revealed, you'll be there. You'll be there. I mean, that's, what, that's what Peter said earlier in, in, chapter, in chapter 1. He said in verse, in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, here, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice. Listen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have been radically transformed. Our, our, our nature is no longer those who love sin, but those who, who pursue and love God. No longer are we following the passions of our former life, as Peter says in 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And in 2.11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. No, no longer are, are we slaves to sin. In fact, in 3.18, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We've been brought to God. You see the, the, the argument Peter is building here, that, that all this, this, this future suffering, the suffering that you're feeling now, all of this is designed for you to be tested, for the genuineness of your faith to be tested, for God's glory to be revealed in you, and for you to share in that glory. It's meant to motivate you and, and encourage you and prepare you. And, and I know, as I, as I read these words, I, I think, you know, how, how much do, do, I, do I suffer for Christ? And, and in, it doesn't feel like much. And so, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, and I'm 65 years old now, all right? So, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm on the back nine of life. I'm probably around the 14th hole, <laughs> Give me, give me 14, five more holes to play. Um, <laughs> oh, I wanted a par five. Um, I wanted to be a long hole. I, I realize, I, I do, I, I genuinely think about heaven more. I think about eternity more. I think about the, the shortness. Of, I, have, I have less life ahead of me than I do behind me. I mean, I'm aware, I'm aware of that. And so when I read about... a, a an inheritance kept in heaven for me that's imperishable and unfading and undefiled. I mean, that, that excites me more and more than it did when I was 25. But I, I, I don't want 40 years to go by for you and, and you not appreciate what Peter is saying here. 
and what he's trying to help you to do, to prepare for suffering, but more importantly, not just to prepare you for suffering, but to prepare you for heaven. That, that's what he's after. You get that? That's, that's what he's after. That's why this, this relationship with Christ is so important and so to be so personal and so intimate. God, God's not just preparing you for suffering. He's preparing you for heaven. And so as, as we see this rejoicing, he's saying, look, you know, yeah, you're going to rejoice in suffering. Why? Because you are going to rejoice in heaven in a way that you don't even imagine at this moment. And so not just hang on. Oh, you can do more than hang on. You can celebrate who God is. Not, not, that, not that Peter is writing to, for us to enjoy suffering. He's not saying enjoy suffering. He's saying rejoice in suffering. And so, so he says, don't, don't, don't be surprised at this. Don't, don't struggle with this. If you remember John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, Know that it's hated me before it hated you. So you know, the question is, do you want to be called a Christian? Do you, do you want to bear the name of Christian? If you are, you need to be ready to be insulted. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, here's another stunning comment. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You are blessed because... The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You are blessed. Yeah, you're going to be opposed. You are, need to be ready to suffer. Insults are hard to take. Yes, they are definitely hard to take. But don't be surprised because it's not a strange thing. If the world hated you, it's because it hated Jesus first. And, and now, now he says this, if you're insulted... And, and I think wisely, I, I mean, this is God's word, so I'm not changing it, but we can think of it as when we will be insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And you are blessed because the spirit of God's glory rests upon you. At their most painful moments, God is present by his spirit. Do you get that? Peter's saying, when, when you are suffering, when you are being insulted in the moment when, when somebody is, is deriding you, when somebody is ridiculing you and mocking you, when somebody is expressing hatred towards you, when somebody is, is simply just looking at you with, with evil intent and just simply dislike you, when, when they look at you like that, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, we, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you at that moment. The, it's, it's the same spirit that is prophesied that would rest upon Jesus in Isaiah eleven two, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's exactly what Peter is saying. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon you. Peter says, be prepared. When you are insulted, when you're in the grocery store line and you get into a conversation and you say something and you are insulted... The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you make a stand for marriage between uh, one man and one woman and you are insulted for believing that and you are insulted for being homophobic and you are insulted for whatever, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you believe that? In Matthew 10, in the fiery trial, this is where the Spirit is made visible. In Matthew 10, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
Now listen, we all... Oh, I, I, be honest, how many of you have visioned yourself as a Christian martyr at some point? Raise your hand. Higher. I want to see. Yeah, I mean, okay. So yeah, you just, I would die for Christ. You know, you, you see yourself. And then, and then you kind of go through the list. Now, I don't want to be burned at the stake. That, no, no, burning, burning, you know. I, I, okay, shot. I'll, I'll be shot. That, that'll, that'll be quick. Um, you know, what, what, beheading, no, no, you know. Um, and then you kind of got to go through the list in your mind. But you, but you do think, oh, yeah, what would it be like to be a martyr for, for Christ? It's much easier to think like that than it is to be insulted. And, 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 we, and oftentimes we really don't know what to say in moments with our, our neighbors when something just gets blurted out by our neighbor and we just, we just stand there and think, okay, is this going to cause a war with my neighbor if I say this? During the Boxer Rebellion in China, Extreme nationalist Chinese incited a campaign of terror against Christian missionaries and Chinese Christians. After they surrounded a certain mission station, they sealed all the exits except one. They placed a cross in the dirt in front of the open gate and told the missionaries and students that anyone who walked out and trampled the cross would be spared. According to the reports, the first seven students who departed trampled the cross and were sent on their way. The eighth student, a young girl, approached the cross, knelt down, prayed for strength, carefully walked around the cross, and was immediately shot to death. The remaining 92 students, strengthened by that girl's courageous example, also walked around the cross to their deaths. How did they do that? How, how did they do that? I'll tell you how they did that. Because the spirit of glory and of God rested upon them. And that same spirit and glory of God rests upon you when you are in a situation where you could be insulted or you could be ridiculed or you could be mocked. It rests upon you. God is present with you. So don't be surprised or think it strange, but rejoice because you are blessed and because God is present with you. Secondly, the second exhortation Peter says is do not suffer for the wrong reasons. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, quickly go through this point. Not, not all who suffer are blessed because they're suffering for the wrong reason, Peter is saying. They're suffering for sin. Now, those who, who suffer for being a criminal don't experience God's blessing and don't experience God's presence, and, and they don't rejoice because God's Spirit's not resting on them. They are, they're not suffering according to God's will, as we see in 3.17 and 4.19. They're suffering for being criminals, for being murderers, and for being a thief, and for being an evildoer. But then Peter drops this one thought in there, and a meddler. A meddler, one, one who involves themselves in or interferes in someone else's business. A busybody. Now, the context of this and what Peter's writing is particular to evangelism. In other words, your, your, your evangelistic efforts are kind of like a bull in a china shop. You, you just say whatever you want regardless of the situation and you invite yourself into conversations where you're not invited in. And this is often the, the, the problems that early Christians, brand new Christians have. They just don't know when to shut up. And so, and so the, the meddler here is basically you are, you're, you're a, an annoyance to people. You're, you're annoying people by your behavior. And so, so Peter, Peter says, you know, don't, don't be a meddler. Don't, don't suffer as a meddler. Don't, don't suffer for one who, who uses the gospel wrongly, who uses the gospel unwisely. Don't, 
don't be annoying. Okay? Just don't be annoying. Now, as I read that, I, I, I took Medler to go way beyond because I, I, have, such a, I have such a dislike of of the internet and the meddling that goes on in the internet. And, and I know that's not the context here, but, but I'm going to expand on it for a moment anyway. Um, don't meddle on the internet. You know, it's just so many people meddle and, and they involve themselves in other people's lives, do all these things. And, and I don't even know all the terminology. I mean, I heard life hack for the first time in my life. I didn't, I didn't even know what it was. Um, but I, I know I've heard of what trolling is. And, um, and I mean, it's just, you know what? Peter's after a godly behavior here. That's what he's after. So, so, so if you're going to suffer, and you will, suffer for the right thing, not the wrong thing. So do not be surprised. Do not suffer for the wrong reasons. And thirdly, do not be ashamed, but glorify God as one who bears Christ's name. Verse 16 Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Now listen, Peter's memory is very vivid here. He knows what it means to be ashamed when presented with suffering for the name of Christ. He knows what it means not to glorify Jesus at the critical moment. And so he challenges them from his own failing for them to seek God's glory, even if it means suffering and insults and ridicule, rejection. And in his case, it could have meant death. Peter, Peter remembers his own failing here. And so he, he builds in them, don't, don't be ashamed for bearing the name of Christ. Don't, don't be ashamed for being a follower of Christ. Don't, don't be ashamed. He wants them to bear Christ's name with, with dignity and faith and courage. In Acts 5.41, if you remember, Peter, Peter after, after rejecting Christ, later on in Acts 5.41 Peter is taken before the Sanhedrin. He is beaten. And after being beaten and he is sent out, told not to share the gospel anymore, he is rejoicing, it says, Luke writes in Acts. He's rejoicing because he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. He was not ashamed then. He suffered for the name of Christ. Robert Mounts in his commentary writes this. He says, don't be ashamed of suffering as a Christian, but rather praise God that you bear his name. Although unacceptable to those who persecute you, the name Christian is worthy of your praise. To hide or obscure what one claims to believe is a serious matter in an age of conflicting loyalties. No one honors a traitor or coward, so praise God that your life is sufficiently different from the world that they take the trouble to persecute you. Listen, the Christian who stands firm and suffers for the gospel, sees, sees something eternally that, that outlasts the, the, the insults of the moment, even death. Peter consoles his readers that it is much better to stand by faith now, even though it results in suffering, than to deny Christ for the temporary relief that it is going to bring. Matthew 10 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What, what, does, what is Peter saying here in this verse 16? Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. He's talking about don't deny Christ in those critical moments. When we had Mac Stiles here, Mac, Mac did a great job and he, and he taught us about the, the temptation to, remember the word? Ducking, right? Let me tell you something. I, I appreciate what Matt, Mac did, and, I, and, and it was very helpful, and it's been helpful. But ducking is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for shame. It's a euphemism for fear. And, and when we duck, basically we are denying Christ. We are being ashamed of the name, bearing the name of Christ. I was in line at the supermarket 
And I was buying flowers from Marilyn. And the lady who's checking me out was asking me, oh, you know, is this your anniversary or whatever? I said, no, no, actually just I wanted to buy some flowers for Marilyn. And, and she said, oh, you know, how long have you been married? And I told her at that time, I think we've been married 38 years. And she said, oh, how did you do it? Now, I could have immediately said, it's our faith in Christ. I said, ah, oh, good communication and walked out. Yeah, boo. <laughs> I, I, I ducked. I missed an opportunity. How often does that happen with you? Oh, what, give me an explanation for what I see in you. Oh, well, yeah, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're just compliant children. Oh, no, no, we apply biblical principles. You know, and on and on. And, and you can think of numbers of, of experiences you've had where you had an opportunity, but you ducked. You, you, you were ashamed. And, and you know, if, if you say I ducked, it doesn't feel as bad as saying I was ashamed of the name of Christ. And not, and not to condemn you, but to encourage you. What, what does Peter say here? If you're insulted... You're blessed and the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. So don't duck. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't deny. And then fourthly, the fourth exhortation, don't forget why you are suffering. Don't forget why. Peter provides here in verses 17 and 18 a helpful summary of why suffering for Christ even exists. He, suffering, he tells us, at the beginning is, is the beginning of God's judgment. Look at verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter's key, including himself, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Suffering, he tells us, is the beginning of God's judgment. You're suffering for, for being a follower of Christ. You, you're being insulted. You're sharing the name of Christ. It's because judgment has begun. God's judgment, God judging, the, this is the end times. God is judging. What does Peter write in verse 7 of chapter 4? The end of all things is at hand. In other words, we're drawing closer to the end of the age. We're drawing closer and God has begun, begun judging and he's judging first with the household of God. And, and this, is why, this is why we experience suffering. Peter includes himself in this judgment, a judgment which Peter is actually saying, listen, this should comfort you. This should assure you. This should in encourage you. What, and why comfort and assurance? Because God's judgment is not punishment for your sins. Your sins already been dealt with. 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We're not punished for our sins anymore. The judgment is for our refinement. Not for our condemnation, but for our refinement. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For their refinement. It's not punitive, but it's, it's the thing that proves their faith is genuine. As we read in 1, 6, and 7. And, and, and so the end is near. This is a divine assessment that, that things are underway, a divine assessment of us the, and, and that we are, we are going to be judged. And that judgment is that suffering, suffering for the gospel because it, it transforms us, it changes us, it refines us, it reveals in us who we really are. If we shrink back, if we deny Christ, it it has a, it has, it's a commentary on the genuineness or the lack of genuineness of our faith. And so Peter, Peter just says, listen, this, 
here's this to comfort you. This judgment that you're experiencing, this suffering, that's me refining you. That's me preparing you for heaven. That's me getting you ready for this inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who is being guarded by faith. You are being prepared by the faith that God has given you. You are being readied. And so this judgment in verse, in verse 17, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. It's beginning right here in this group of people right now. This divine assessment is underway, but it doesn't end with us, brothers and sisters. The unbelieving will be judged as well. Verse, verse 18, and if the righteous, well, verse 17, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Interesting phrase that Peter uses there. Obey the gospel of God. It doesn't say those who don't believe. He's talking about those who don't obey the gospel. Those who reject God, reject Christ. And then he goes on in 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? Now, scarcely is is not uncertainty. In other words, it means with difficulty. Scarcely is, it, it more in the Greek means with difficulty. The difficulty Peter is speaking of is that suffering Christians are enduring for the name of Christ. Their, their outcome is not uncertain, okay? We, we read that in 1, 3 through 5. But, but getting there, getting to that imperishable, unfading, undefiled place in heaven kept for you, we get there with difficulty, and the difficulty is living for Christ and standing up for Christ. And so that's what Peter is saying. If your faith is, is genuine, it's going to be a difficult time. It's, it's, it's not a, a commentary on you might make it to heaven and you might not. No, no, you will make it to heaven if you are a believer in Christ. If you are not, though, Peter goes on to say, if the righteous is scarcely saved, in other words, if life is difficult for the righteous in their enduring time on this earth until they reach heaven, how bad will it be for the ungodly and the sinner? How bad will it be? Because the refining fire of God's judgment leaves no one untouched. And that, that judgment that began with us will end with them. And it is not just a purifying fire for us, but it is a terror fire for those who do not know Christ, who die not believing or trusting, putting their faith in Christ and his death and resurrection. This is, this is a call to evangelism for us, brothers and sisters. This is a call to tell people, look, Christ, Christ died for sins. Christ died for your sins. Christ died that you might have eternal life. This is a, this is a call for us to share the gospel, to be aware that people are perishing. That people, people are, people are, are laying in their beds in their last moments with terror upon them. With no hope of an unfading, undefiled, imperishable heaven being kept for them. But with a, with a terror of condemnation and judgment and fear that will last for all eternity, that is what they are facing. So, so Peter says, look, you, you take comfort. You, you know why you're suffering. The unbelieving, all they'll know is terror. Finally, Peter gives us a closing application in verse 19. How, how we are to respond to suffering. And, and simply, it's by doing what he earlier wrote in chapter 2, verse 21, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to his father in the midst of his suffering, his horrific suffering, going to the cross, that he would die for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He trusted his father. And Peter writes here, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, don't stop. 
Don't stop doing the good. And that, that word good is a refrain throughout the book of First Peter. Entrust your souls to God. What, what a profound statement. We, and, and, and listen, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Okay, you leave here today. Remember this, you suffer. When you suffer for the gospel, you are suffering according to God's will. According to God's will will. That is, that is supposed to be an encouragement to you. As the creator of all things, nothing happens that God does not permit. Our future is in his hands. Our present is in his hands. God, Job entrusted his soul to God. He suffered. Job suffered without ever knowing why he was suffering, but suffer he did, and, and it was God's will for him to suffer. And God refined Job's faith, and God proved Job's faith. And, and, and Job ended his life without ever knowing why he suffered. Like Job, we too can struggle with why. We can, we can at times question God, but unlike Job, we know why we suffer. Because God is refining us, and it is his will for us to be fashioned more into the image of his son that we might be giving glory to him. The glory that God himself by his spirit rests upon us. So until the day that, like until the day I, I reach the, the 18th hole, as I make that last putt, I'm entrusting my soul to a faithful creator. And so are you. And, and none of us know the day of our death. None of us know the moment. Yeah, I, I may be 65, but I may be around longer than some of you. Not that I'm wishing anybody would die. I want you all to be here. I want you all to say nice things at my funeral. But... Some are laughing because they think there's no way I can say nice things at this funeral. <laughs> so what does Peter want from us out of this passage? He wants us to take hope, brothers and sisters. He wants us to rejoice that we suffer according to God's will, to find joy, to, to know that we are blessed, to, to understand that this, this passage is a passage of encouragement and a passage of faith and a passage of love that we are the beloved of God who are being blessed and able to rejoice and able to trust because we are in God's will. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and that whatever happens to us Whatever experience we have by bearing your name, it's because you are preparing us to bring glory to your name and you are refining us to become more like your son that we can look forward one day to that, to that wonderful hope you've given us of an unfading, imperishable, undefiled eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.